Hi there, I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In this, our first season, we're focusing on future trends, the themes, ideas, and issues that will shape our future and the investment environment, not just tomorrow, but for decades to come. Technological change is, of course, the most powerful force shaping the economy of the future. And so I'm happy to be joined today by Jack Manley, global market strategist on our Market Insights team to discuss the 21st century economy and the impact of technological innovations in shaping the world and the investment environment, both today and in the decades ahead. Hi, Jack, and thank you very much for joining us here on Insights Now. Well, thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. The focus of your research is the 21st century economy, but of course, the 21st century is already 20 years old. Um, so why is this an important topic to discuss right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And I, I found that in, a, in the course of a lot of my conversations with clients, you know, we talk about what the economy looks like today, what, what the stock market looks like today, what productivity looks like today. And, and I oftentimes wonder, you know, are we are we measuring today's conditions, today's problems using yesterday's tools? And when I say that, I, I, I mean, you know, we live in this world. We all have basically supercomputers that are the size of a deck of playing cards in our pockets at any time. We have access to high-speed internet connections, which means that we have access to data at extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary fast speeds. Are we able to effectively measure just what that has done to our productivity? And I think you can make the argument that it's hard to bake in. It's a little bit less tangible. Uh, and because of that, I think understanding this a little bit more is, uh, is, is important. You know, we also look at, at growth nowadays, and I'm sure you, know, you could say this probably better than anyone, but, but at the end of the day, growth comes down to really two things when we're looking at the economy. It's going to be a function of growing your labor force or a function of growing your productivity. So if you uh, are, are a manufacturing uh, facility owner and you want to uh, increase your production of widgets, whatever it is that you make, you can either hire more people or you can give your existing workforce better tools, better technology to make them more productive. And we look at where we stand right now in the United States. We see that the birth rate is falling. We see that immigration numbers are, are lower. We are going to have to lean more and more on productivity, enhancing tools and features to really inspire growth in the future. And I think that that's why this is such an important topic to talk about right now. Okay. So I can see why technology is so important. Um, in terms of determining our future growth. But having said that, you know, there's a myriad of different technological ideas out there. Can you tell me, uh, from your perspective, what are some of the most important technological advances that we're going to see shaping the economy of the future? Yeah, to my mind, there are really going to be four of them, and I think that they're pretty distinct. Uh, they, 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 they all stand sort of alone, and so I wouldn't necessarily want to try to rank them, although I'm sure that's a question that, that may, came up, may come up. But in terms of what's most interesting to me right now, the four technological advancements that we have to look forward to are going to be the blockchain, they're going to be artificial intelligence. They're going to be cloud computing. And if you really want to get into the science fiction realm, something like quantum computing. And then they're going to be uh, 5G, uh, high-speed data connection, sort of the internet of things that's associated with all that. Those are really the, the four things I think are, are worth paying attention to now. So blockchain is kind of an interesting point because a lot of people associate that with, with Bitcoin. But but. Do you sort of disassociate blockchain from Bitcoin? How, and is the blockchain interesting as of its, uh, itself, really? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's actually critical to to break down or break away cryptocurrencies and things like Bitcoin away from the blockchain. The blockchain is is really just a tool. It's a platform. You know, you think about uh, the blockchain as being kind of like the internet, as cryptocurrency is to a particular website or a particular service. Blockchain has a whole lot of applications outside of just these cryptocurrencies that people have been talking a lot about in 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 recent months. Uh, in recent years. I mean, at a very high level, the reason the blockchain is so exciting is because it allows for safe, secure, and reasonably seamless transactions between parties. It streamlines things like uh, contract settlement uh, down from matters of days to matters of seconds. It's all verifiable. It is all secured. Uh, and it really could transform the way a lot of our contracts are settled, the way we send money to one another. Uh, there are just a number of facets that I think are extraordinarily exciting from the blockchain. We've already started to see them be adapted by a number of institutions out there, financial ones included. Okay, so if uh, so, the blockchain is going to be a, a really important part of this future. Um, I think a lot of people are somewhat nervous about that. I think they're even more nervous about the whole concept of artificial intelligence. Um, is this something that you know we should worry about, or do you think artificial intelligence is really going to be a big part of our technological future also? I would say artificial intelligence is already a big part of our of our of our reality at the moment. It has been for a long time. You know, if you count things like automation, uh, if you count uh, the, the machines that are helping to manufacture cars in parts of this country, that is already a part of artificial intelligence. That's a big part of our lives. It has been for decades, frankly. Uh, you look at how artificial intelligence may kind of spread out beyond that. I think the applications are probably more exciting than they are scary. I mean, we have things like, say, self-driving cars, you know, a car that you no longer have to actually pay too much attention to. Those things are already sort of on the road right now. We're talking about technological advancements, leaps and bounds beyond that that make them truly autonomous. Then you have things like robotic assistants, so computers that can understand human speech but in a natural way. You know, you and I can have a conversation like this one, and I can throw out an idiom to you, and you'll know what that means. You know, if I say, David, spill the beans on that. You're going to know what that means. You know, you're not going to actually take out a can of beans and turn it upside down. But will the computer understand that? Will it understand the context that is associated with the way that I say those words, with my tone, with the broader sort of understanding of the situation? We are very rapidly moving in that direction as well. A robotic assistant that can understand natural human speech. I, I think that there are so many ways that artificial intelligence has already improved productivity and will continue to make our lives simpler, more streamlined moving forward, it's something that people should be excited about, I think, more than more than fearful of. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I sound a little old when I talk about the fears about this stuff, but pe people have fears about artificial intelligence. They also have some fears about, um, you know, cloud computing and, and quantum computing. Um, you know, is, is this an opportunity or, or is this a, a risk here? Well, again, you know, cloud computing is one of these things where it's already a big part of our lives and we may just not really know it. Now, everybody has access to cloud computing at the moment because everybody's got an email address. And, you know, you can check your email on your smartphone. You can check your email on your tablet. You can check your email on your laptop. You can check your email on your friend's laptop. You don't even need to own the device that you're checking your email on. It's because those messages, they aren't saved locally. They're not saved on your device. They're saved up there in the cloud. They're saved up there on the Internet. 
You add stuff like that onto the other implications that I think are, are much more exciting, much more groundbreaking. You're talking about computing that gets centralized in certain locations. No longer do I have to rely on the box in front of me to do certain calculations. You can instead rely on a room full of servers that could be tens, hundreds, thousands of miles away that I dip into using an internet connection that allows me to do very complex computational uh, uh, procedures without having to rely on, on a physical piece of hardware sitting in front of me. There are some really exciting computational implications of that, and frankly, cloud computing, things like that, it's the reason why you and I and so many other Americans have been so productive over the last several months. The fact that we're working from home, that we are using these sort of virtual desktops, I think it is, uh, again, proof of just how exciting uh, and transformative some of these technologies can be. Now, quantum computing, that's sort of the next level. That's going to be almost science fiction. It's a very nascent uh, technology. And it's important to, to, to make the distinction here because quantum computing, a quantum computer is not going to be a super fast computer for checking your emails or for streaming whatever the new movie is. This is a computer in the traditional sense of the word, the old school sense of the word, a machine that computes. It solves problems. Maybe those are cryptographic things for security. Maybe they are calculating orbit trajectories for NASA. But quantum computing can do what current present day computers are just impossible or are incapable of doing. One of my best friends from school, he's a physics, uh, a physicist, got his master's, really smart guy in this space. And every once in a while, we'll talk about this. And it's, it's really exciting. And the, the analogy that he used for me that I thought was just such a great way to think about this is a traditional computer works like this. So you hide a toy in a child's room and you tell that child to go find the toy. So he's going to walk over to his toy box. He's going to open it up. Is it there? No. Is it under the bed? No. Is it maybe in the desk? No. Is it in the nightstand? And eventually, the child will find that toy. Maybe he gets lucky, he finds it on his first guess. Maybe it takes him 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Maybe eventually, he just gets worn out. He gives up. Quantum computing is you ask that same question to the quantum computer, and at that exact moment, an infinite number of children appear and look in an infinite number of places. And the one that lands in the right spot pulls out the toy and you have your answer. So it's no longer really a question of luck. You are rapidly accelerating the computational time for some of these things. And when you're talking about uh, traditional computations that are very, very hardware intensive, uh, things like orbital trajectories for space exploration, quantum computing can really take us, I think, to the next level. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the power of quantum computing and also the power of of uh, cloud you know cloud computing is um, or or having information on the cloud and accessible to to so many individuals that obviously is an evolution in in from a technological perspective which is incredibly important. But in order to do that, you've got to actually access it, and, and we're hearing a lot about the rollout of five G, uh, presumably as a better way to access all of this uh, computing power and this uh, information power. 
5G is is certainly going to be a, a the backbone for a lot of these technologies. It is the new standard uh, for how we we interact with mobile data. So right now we're all sort of on the 4G platform. Uh, you know, several years ago, maybe a decade or so ago, we were on 3G. Before it, 5G is this new iteration, and it is a lot like these other technologies. Really, a transformation of how we used to do things into a brand new way of thinking about them. All right, we think about how we get cellular service in today's world, there is a big cellular tower set up somewhere. It's going to be super tall and it's going to project out waves of information uh, that you'll be able to receive over a multi-mile sort of radius. You, you, these, these towers will cover large, large portions uh, of whatever area it is that they, they're located. 5G is a different way of approaching this. Instead of having one big cellular tower that covers miles and miles and miles of ground, you have much, much smaller localized 5G boxes that beam out signals. And now, if you're in, say, a city, you're not talking about one uh, tower for many square miles. You're talking about one box for a couple of square blocks. The advantage of this is that these 5G cells can send out data at a much higher frequency, which means you can get it at a much higher speed. It's actually so fast that it could rival some of the traditional internet service providers, things like cable internet. And when you get internet that's this fast, that's this reliable, it starts to enable a whole list of exciting technologies that can be built off of it. I mean, David, like you said, cloud computing is an excellent example of that. Certainly some artificial intelligence implications like self-driving cars, and then even things like automating your own home. You know, you walk into your house, your house realizes that your phone has entered the front door, and so it turns on the air conditioning unit, it turns on the lights, maybe it turns on uh, the music to your, your, your favorite channel. Uh, it knows what you like and it adjusts to do that. All of these, I think, really uh, exciting ways to sort of improve our daily lives, make us happier, make us more productive, and, and, and you're right, I mean, 5G and I think the Internet of Things as it comes off of that uh, are both very important stepstones to getting to that point. So what what is the Internet of Things? So the Internet of Things is basically two computers, think of it at a high level, two computers talking to each other with no human interaction whatsoever. So you don't have to do, tell your computer to do anything. Your computer knows what it wants to do and it talks to other computers and does that for you. So that example I was using earlier, you, know, you have an internet of things kind of set up in your home, a smart house, if you will. Your, your house knows when you walk through the front door because all of a sudden your cell phone crosses the threshold. And so it knows to tell, your cell phone knows to tell all these other smart gadgets you have up, uh, lined up around your house. Things like the thermostat, things like the light switches, things like your stereo system. And as soon as you walk in, it knows what to do to make you feel welcome. You know, your day is over, you're back at home, how do you handle that? Well, your computer will take care of that. We're starting to make, make uh, roads towards that in terms of uh, how we interact with, with our homes. You already have certain smart home uh, devices on the market right now, but 5G just, just makes the, the potential uh, for these technologies, I think, so much greater. I think uh, an interesting question, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this in this blighted pandemic year here because it's... Uh, you know, I was thinking about having a you know a five G box on, on every uh, city block. The problem is you're not actually walking along the city blocks anymore because we're all stuck at home um, in, in the pandemic. How how is this pandemic changing the the trajectory of these technologies? 
I think for most of them, it's accelerating the need. I mean, like you said, we're all kind of sitting at home. Our data needs at home are now significantly larger than they ever were in the past because now we're not commuting somewhere to work. We're not going somewhere else and using their computational power, using their data pr uh, providers. We're using our own stuff. And so having access to higher speed data like you would get through 5G, having access uh, to better computational power like you would get through cloud computing, I think they're both of extreme importance. I mean, we've already seen that happen with cloud computing, with working from home, virtual desktops, technologies that a lot of us already utilize. And even beyond that, if you're looking past the current pandemic, I think, and I'd be curious if you'd agree with this, but I would imagine that we look at a world that comes out of this pandemic in 2021, or you know, perhaps perhaps a little bit sooner than that, uh, with a real hangover effect, if you want to call it that. People still feeling kind of wary about interacting with strangers. And that, I think, is where the artificial intelligence story comes in. You know, how many stores can you go in and self-checkout? How many uh, restaurants can you go in and self-checkout? How do you minimize your in-person or person-to-person -person interactions? And so artificial intelligence, too, I think, is benefiting from this. People are realizing just how important it is, just how, uh, how much better it can make their, their daily lives, whether it's work or fun. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see these technologies accelerate uh, in terms of development times. You know, you know Jack, uh, like, like yourself, uh, I've been watching a lot of old movies uh, during this pandemic. And what I particularly like are actually futuristic movies where, uh, you know, the, the filmmakers, people like Stanley Kubrick or Steven Spielberg, try to imagine the world 30 or 40 or 50 years hence. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it spectacularly wrong. Um, you've talked about a lot of fascinating technologies here, but how do you know or, uh, which ones are actually likely to, to, to grow given the, the, the economics of this? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that that last point. I mean, it is a question of the economics and, and for any of these technologies to really survive and thrive, they need to be economically viable. And what I would say here is the good news is that so many of these technologies are already past their infancy. I mean, when we talk about artificial intelligence, you know, truly understanding uh, human uh, human language, human interaction, that may be years and years and years uh, in the future. But if we look at where we stand right now, there are smart home devices that you can buy at the moment that are pretty darn good at understanding what you're trying to tell them to do. We have cloud computing. It's existed for a long time, maybe not in its final stage, but something that is very clearly uh, a part of every everybody's daily lives and frankly has been fueling a lot of the earnings growth in some of these more exciting technology tech adjacent uh, companies. Blockchain is taking off, especially at financial institutions where contracts can be settled almost instantly. You know, why does a bank need to wait days to settle an options contract? It can do that instantly. It can settle a swap instantly. You know, think about the applications for things like uh, real estate. You know, how, how great would it be if you could automatically put your house into escrow when you are purchasing something from somebody? You don't have to worry about using all the different, uh, you know, all the different traditional avenues to get to this point where it can take days or weeks. You can have it done instantly. You can have it be verifiable. You can have it be safe and secure. I think that that technology is already in, in its infancy and we already have very clear real world applications that would benefit from it. So while the timeline for some of these things may be longer than for others, quantum computing for example could be decades off in the future, I think they all 
already have uh, truly viable, economically viable use cases. And so I wouldn't uh, discount any of these uh, in the next 5, 10, 15 years. If all these technologies are on track, um, you know, a lot of people are nervous about them because uh, very often in human history, well, it's been one long progress of advancing technologies. A lot of people got left behind. Are people going to get left behind by some of these technological revolutions? Well, I, th I think it depends how you want to approach that question. I mean, like you said, this has been, uh, th this is not a new issue. It's an issue that we've been dealing with uh, ever since humans started advancing, started started inventing new technologies. You know, I was I was reading uh, uh, the other day, and David, as you may know, I was a history major in college, so I, 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 I'm a big history buff. And, you know, you look back on, on, on things like the Luddite movement. Now, almost everybody listening is going to know what a Luddite is, more or less. You know, it's someone that is resistant to technology. They are deliberately obtuse when it comes to technology. They don't really like to use it. But the Luddites, that's a real movement in American history, in English history, in the Western uh, world's history where in the late 19th century, you had textile workers deliberately sabotaging and destroying automated weaving machines because they thought that when automated weaving came around, that would be the end of this part of the economy. And what we have very obviously learned in the, cent in the century since then is that we adapt as a species. You know, there are jobs that exist right now that were inconceivable to people 20 years ago, 30 years ago, forget about 100 years ago, industries that just don't make any sense if you look at them uh, from a historical lens. And so we can assume that people will adapt, they will move forward, they will learn new skills. But I think it's also important to point out here that there probably is a political element to this question in the sense that a lot of people will need retraining for jobs so that they aren't left behind, uh, that they may need support between now and when they do get that extra training so they can be a participant in this new economy. But I would say that for the most part, like you've seen throughout history uh, in the United States and really all around the world, we will adapt we will move forward and the world keeps turning. I, I guess uh, resistance is futile. Uh, just learn to adapt. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us on Insights Now. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening. And please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by Mira Pandit, global market strategist on our Market Insights team, to discuss demographic potholes, dwindling births, diminishing immigration, and aging population, and what it all means for economic growth and investing. Please stay on for the following important disclosures. The Market Insights program provides comprehensive data and commentary on global markets without reference to products. Designed as a tool to help clients understand the markets and support investment decision-making, the program explores the implications of current economic data and changing market conditions. For the purposes of MIFID 2 the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID 2 MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the JP Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or any other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. 
Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risk. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at am.jpmorgan.com global privacy. This podcast is issued by the following entities. In the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients' use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories, except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland, and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015865K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.